Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will have an opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information. My name is Babak Shah, and an associate professor in pharmacy practice at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia. And our guests today are Dr. Maria Foy, an advanced clinical pharmacist, pharmacist specialist in pain management and palliative care, and Dr. Danielle Schulenkamp, an advanced clinical pharmacist specialist in critical care. Both of our guests are at Jefferson in Abington in the greater Philadelphia area. And in this episode, we'll be discussing ketamine's role in the critically ill population. Welcome, Maria and Danielle. Thank you, Bavik. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Bavik. So to begin, uh, Danielle, can you give us a little bit about a little background on ketamine? Of course. Hi, everyone. This is one of our favorite topics since Maria and I use the drug in such different ways. This makes for some pretty thought-provoking discussions between us. Hopefully, we can spark some interest in all of you. FDA approved since 1970, ketamine made its debut as a short-acting injectable anesthetic agent with both sedative and analgesic properties, making it a desirable agent for such uses as rapid sequence intubation, procedural sedation, and post-operative pain. Other effects include amnesia, catalepsy, sympathetic system activation, and bronchodilation. What makes it unique is the dissociative hypnotic state it imparts. The pharmacology of ketamine is fascinatingly complex and appears to be a promising adjunct or even alternative to common agents used in the ICU. However, due to the lack of large controlled trials, we are dependent on small studies, peer experiences, and anecdotal application. Later labeled as a street drug and a veterinary drug, ketamine fell out of favor for a while, which resulted in a subsequent lack of familiarity with use. But as pharmacists, we have the advantage of understanding its use to help guide providers. Please note that much of what we will be discussing is off-labeled use. Thanks for that background. It looks like there's a lot of different uses for ketamine. So I wanted to begin our conversation focusing on ketamine for pain, because I think that's where many people will have some degree of familiarity with. So Maria, can you describe to us how does ketamine work for pain management? Sure. So ketamine has been used for years as a treatment for acute pain. Recently, we've really seen usage dramatically increase. We can use ketamine for various acute pain conditions, including being used alone for pain control or as an adjunct to opioids for opioid-sparing effects. The evidence for use in chronic pain is not as robust as in, as in acute pain. Use in various neuropathic pain conditions is where most of the evidence exists for the use of ketamine in chronic pain. And ketamine works differently for acute versus chronic With chronic pain, ketamine is proposed to reverse central sensitization or overstimulation of the pain system through antagonizing the N-methyl-D-aspartate or the NMDA receptor. And this results in decreased neuronal activity that reaches to the brain. So when you antagonize the NMDA receptor, you will see a decreased release of glutamate 
And glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter that stimulates that NMDA receptor signal to send that pain signal to the brain. So you see a result in decreased transmission and pain signals to the brain. And it's also reported to enhance pain modulation through enhancing descending modulation pathways, where it resets the pain system. That's what's postulated to re be responsible for analgesia for chronic pain. But the evidence here has been inconsistent. What we need is longer duration infusions for the treatment of chronic pain. And that may be required to accomplish that adequate antagonism of the receptor that is needed to reset our pain system. With acute pain, you really don't see that central sensitization and, and impaired modulation that you're gonna see in chronic pain. With acute pain, NMDA antagonism is partly responsible for ketamine's analgesic response, but additional mechanisms such as effects on the mu opioid receptor and various other receptor pathways will contribute to that analgesic response. Ketamine works on multiple pathways that collectively regulate pain control and mood. And interesting for anybody that practices with chronic pain, mood is something that may drive sensitization of the pain system when patients don't have the ability to cope with their pain. And so this um, multiple different pathways may explain why ketamine can be effective for acute pain conditions. With dosing and chronic pain, what we will try to do is use the highest tolerated dose and treat any mild side effects that may result. We're really pushing the dose in chronic pain. And this is in order to try to re reduce that central sensitization. But with acute pain, we titrate doses to effect. And we're trying to balance beneficial effect with, the, with uh, efficacy for pain with adverse reactions that may be seen. So we're trying to use the lowest effective dose for acute pain. You really need to try to do more research to determine the most appropriate dosing interval and duration of therapy. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about specific dosing later on in the podcast. So as it relates to pain then, what type of conditions will ketamine be effective for or may be helpful? So for pain management, we're using ketamine for many different indications. And Danielle will talk a little bit about the non-pain indications. But for pain management, most of the evidence for ketamine is used in acute pain. And it's usually used in the perioperative space. We see evidence for also for specific painful diseases, such as a sickle cell crisis exacerbation or in trauma. So patients can fall into several categories for when we're using it for acute pain. So the first category is in surgery, where we either expect post-op pain to be very severe, such as in abdominal pain, thoracic, or orthopedic procedures. The second group can be opioid-tolerant patients especially if they're receiving a surgical procedure. So in opioid-tolerant patients that, get, um, that are having surgery, we use ketamine intraoperatively. And we, that can help decrease postoperative opioid consumption. The third group, as I said, ketamine can be used in a painful exacerbation of a chronic disease, such as sickle cell disease. I actually had a sickle cell patient that became hyperalgesic with hydromorphone therapy. In other words, the hydromorphone was actually contributing to the pain. She was using a syringe of 10 milligrams of hydro hydromorphone in two to three hours, and her pain was escalating despite a high dose of hydromorphone. So we initiated her on a ketamine infusion, and within 24 hours, her pain was adequately treated. 
we can see for acute pain um, for uh, pain treatment in other conditions such as renal colic, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome exacerbations, and in patients with ERCP, pancreatitis pain. This has anecdotal evidence for using ketamine, where there we can try it if the pain is severe and we want to um, give ketamine an attempt here for pain control. And our last subset of patients are patients with severe pain who may be at risk for respiratory depression, such as patients with sleep apnea. And this can be used as an adjunctive therapy to minimize opioid use and thereby possibly decreasing the respiratory depression effects if you're using opioids alone and minimizing that adverse effect. Again, for chronic pain, the evidence is definitely not as robust for using ketamine as an analgesic. Where we see evidence is in chronic regional pain syndrome, where we can use ketamine infusions and we can see efficacy for up to 12 weeks after treatment. I actually had a patient that had chronic regional pain syndrome where she was not on ketamine and suffering with pain all the time. She was in a wheelchair. Her child could not hug her. She couldn't even shave her legs because of the pain. She experienced something called allodynia, which is a painful condition for something that should not cause pain, like just touch. So with her, I, I um, got her on a ketamine infusion here in our institution to initiate therapy. We gave her five days worth of ketamine infusions here, and she followed up outpatient where she went to a ketamine clinic. And she started out three times a week with ketamine infusions, which, which turned into now, she only needs it once a month. She was able to reset her pain syndrome. And now she actually can go to the gym. She can play with her child. She has an antique car. She goes to car shows. She's living her life again because of ketamine. So you can see how for this chronic pain condition, how it has been life-changing for my patient. We also can see ketamine with uh, spinal cord injuries. Evidence is weak, but in most neuropathic pain conditions outside of ketamine and possibly spinal cord injuries, the weak or little to no evidence exists for supporting injuries. I never talk hearing that success story. And although the use in hyperalgesia is fairly well known, our institution didn't routinely use ketamine as sedation in the ICU. Then pandemic hit, standard analgo sedation meds, unavailable. We became extremely creative with our other formulations, but this was a great opportunity to assess the utility of this agent in our ventilated patients. It was added adjunctively to reduce the requirements of other agents and preserve what little supply was available. As the pandemic dust settled, we saw the potential and we look forward to finding our ideal population to benefit from this drug. Fairly recently, I noticed one of our providers using it in our ECMO patients, so I asked why. He told me for bronchodilation, where ketamine ultimately increases pulmonary blood flow, thereby improving oxygenation. I would not have thought to use it that way. Another area that's gaining popularity is in depression that's refractory to traditional therapies. It has a rapid effect as early as minutes and can last several weeks. As a reminder of the complexities of its many mechanisms, NMDA receptor antagonism by ketamine prevents activation of GABA interneurons and causes downstream disinhibition of glutamatergic neurons and a consequential glutamate surge. 
Where this is especially helpful is when we're adding or adjusting other antidepressant agents in which the time to optimal effect takes an extended period of time. Thank you, uh, Daniel, for mentioning the other uses for ketamine. I, th I think this is a good opportunity for me to sort of plug in the other ACHP podcast on ketamine for neuropsychiatric disorders. So if you haven't had gotten a chance, uh, listen to that podcast uh, on refractory depression with Matt Fuller. Um, so you could get CE credits for that as well. So let's continue our conversation about ketamine. Uh, who is uh, not a candidate for ketamine? Seems like there's a lot of potential uses for it, but who, uh, who should clinicians be uh, uh, not considered not using ketamine in the critically ill population? So we see contraindications to ketamine therapy for both acute and chronic pain. They're very similar contraindications for both. And since doses are much lower than what we're using for anesthetic agent, the contraindications that are associated with high-dose therapy may not be as clinically significant with these sub-anesthetic doses that we're using for these other indications. So patients with uncontrolled hypertension, pregnancy, and severe hepatic disease may not be candidates for IV ketamine. Ketamine is also contraindicated in patients with elevated intraocular pressure and intracranial pressure. And if we do decide to use in these patients, we should be used cautiously and at a reduced dose. Ketamine should also be avoided in patients with poorly controlled psychosis. This recommendation is based on reports of activating hallucinations and delusions when ketamine was given to patients with known schizophrenia. Patients with delirium may also have worsening of symptoms with ketamine therapy. So that's a relative contraindication for use of ketamine. Ketamine hasn't been associated with psychomimetic effects such as hallucinations, dissociative reactions, in approximately 3 to 7% of patients. So another group that may have a contraindication is patients that are unable to use benzodiazepine therapies. We treat the psychomimetic effects of ketamine with benzodiazepine. So if someone is contraindicated to benzodiazepine therapy, ketamine may not be an appropriate drug for them. We also know that ketamine is associated with abuse potential. So we have to be careful in patients with alcohol or substance use history because ketamine can be relatively contraindicated. However, we need to take into account the clinical scenario on when we're using ketamine. So when we're using it for acute pain, ketamine may be preferred over opioids in a substance abuse population because of the known abuse potential of opioid therapy. In an opioid-tolerant patient, ketamine may also be preferred because we would need high doses of opioid therapy to treat pain if someone is tolerant. So ketamine can be sparing to the opioids and can be beneficial for treatment. So we usually, for acute pain, can use it as one-time doses that can be repeated. But for chronic pain, we dose it much differently. We need that extended infusion time in order to reset the NMDA receptor. So for acute pain, you can get away with a single one or two doses. But with chronic pain, we're using extended infusions. So what besides analgesia uh, can ketamine be used for in the ICU? So an area that we see it used is in rapid sequence intubation. It's given after pretreatment as an induction agent in lieu of etomidate prior to neuromuscular blocking agents. This can be given intraosseously if we don't have IV access, 
And the dose is one to two milligram per kilo IV push for a one-time dose. We also see it used in procedural sedation. It's short acting, it's safe, it's effective, and it also provides the analgesia that we've been talking about. Don't be deceived. Although we use it for rapid sequence intubation, patients don't always need to be intubated for its use. And there will be times that we will need to use supplemental O2, which I'll talk about in a second. And where we first started using this was in our pediatric population in the ER. But we moved it into our adult patients when I had a gentleman where we reached an impasse in the ICU during his wound vac changes. The amount of fentanyl and versed required were going to lead him to intubation. And what happened was I made the suggestion of doing procedural sedation bedside while we did them. Um, I learned very quickly, my patient desatted <laughs> transiently, but we gave some oxygen and everything was fine. Um, and he actually ended up needed, needing increased dosing for those back changes. It was a success, and we continued to do that until he no longer needed the uh, wound changes. The doses, again, very similar, one to two milligram per kilo. Uh, but then you give repeat doses. So depending on how long the procedure, you may need to give subsequent dosing of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo. This is about every five minutes to 15 minutes. Um, but it's also helpful to know that we can give it intramuscularly, again, an alternative when we don't have IV access. We've given it in the ICUs for acute agitation. This is really reserved for those times where it is refractory to other agents, such as our benzodiazepines, our antipsychotic medications, like Haldol. Again, IV or IM. Maria mentioned potential contraindication, elevated intracranial pressure, and data in traumatic brain injury is cautionary at best. The unpredictability of the effect on blood pressure makes it an iffy choice, but based on experiences in psych and with agitation in general, where we found most benefit was after the acute phase of the injury, when weaning from sedation and antipsychotic or mood-stabilizing drugs were difficult. Patients would receive high doses of meds for neurobehavioral sequelae, but within 24 to 48 hours of initiation of a ketamine infusion, sedation was tapered or even discontinued, as well as the adjunctive meds, leaving only the ketamine, which could be tapered rather quickly. I am going to give you the caveat that there is no defined taper schedule for ketamine, so we really do gauge it on our patients' responses. So hopefully we facilitate extubation and decrease our overall ICU length of stay. Can you uh, both of you comment on how ketamine dosed, uh, can, uh, can be dosed for those various indications that you had mentioned? I'll take on that. So. Basically, in our emergency room for acute pain, we use ketamine at a dose of 0.3 milligram per kilogram, either as an IV push or piggyback over 15 minutes. For infusions, we use a milligram per hour dose as our initial rate with a range of 10 to 15 milligrams per hour and a maximum infusion rate of one milligram per kilogram per hour. 
This falls within guidelines of ketamine, and the guidelines recommend that the bolus doses not exceed 0.35 milligram per kilogram, and infusion rates not exceed one milligram per kilogram per hour. Anecdotally, we don't generally exceed 0.5 milligram per kilogram per hour and have seed efficacy at that dose range, but we can, in our institution, go as high as one milligram per kilogram per hour. So for example, if we have a 60 kilogram patient and we initiate that patient at 15 milligrams per hour, that equates to a dose of 0.25 milligram per kilogram per hour, which you will see is in the recommended dosing range. So most acute pain treatment doses reported in studies utilize boluses of 0.5 milligram per kilogram or less and infusions of less than 0.5 milligram per kilogram per hour. So these are within range for common dosing regimens that include a bolus of 0.1 to 0.5 milligram per kilogram and infusions of 0.1 to 0.6 milligram per kilogram per hour. Ketamine has also been studied as part of a post-op multimodal regimen. They looked at this in studies and results of four meta-analyses showed that pain scores improved, opioid consumption was moderately reduced, and patients experienced less post-op nausea and vomiting when ketamine was added to adjuncts for opioid therapy. Now for chronic pain, say for my chronic regional pain syndrome patient, I institute doses usually at 0.5 milligram per kilogram per hour for treatment, and I've seen good response to this dosing. So we use this as a continuous infusion for three to five days in order to reset the pain system. And we need to do that in an acute care setting. There is alternative dosing where you can give as a once daily infusion for 10 days, but realistically in an inpatient setting, that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna see people staying for a four hour infusion in our ICUs for 10 days we would institute that infusion um, over three to five days of continuous infusion instead. And because all of our patients in our institution do need to be in the ICU for ketamine therapy, that's why an infusion makes more sense than a 10-day intermittent bolus daily dose. I'm going to talk about its use in sedation because I love the variability of this dosing based on our end goal. For example, if we're going to use ketamine as our analgo sedation drug primarily, uh, we typically use the weight-based dosing. This would be 0.1 to 0.5 milligram per kilo bolus, followed by 0.2 to 0.5 milligram per kilo per hour continuous infusion, which we do titrate to our RAS score. Sometimes we need to push this dose a little bit, and you'll see that max of one milligram per kilo per hour. But if we were going to use it as our adjunct, say for suspected hyperalgesia, tachyphylaxis, we may use the flat dosing that Maria spoke of, where we're doing 10 to 15 milligram per hour, and we're titrating it upwards. For depression, uh, the dose is, a, is um, a starting dose of 0.5 milligram per kilo IV piggyback. It's given over 40 minutes, and we do require that there is someone monitoring the patient during that infusion. We can maximize this dose up to a milligram per kilogram, depending on response, and it can be given up to three times weekly. Ultimately, the hope is that they don't need it as frequently. 
So the, so the two of you uh, spent some time talking about some of the, the benefits of ketamine as, a, as a, an option for patients who have refractory pain or refractory agitation or need opioid sparing options. So it holds a lot of promise. Can you comment on some of the adverse effects that clinicians should be aware of and monitor for when using ketamine for these indications in the ICU? Sure, and I think this is so important because it drives what patients we feel are appropriate for this therapy. So some of the effects that are rare and transient, but that we do see, you can see a laryngospasm. So again, this may not be appropriate in a patient who already has some sort of reactive airway disorder. Can also see respiratory depression or apnea. Again, very brief, uh, but we'll need to assess other risk factors. Remember my patient example that I gave, supplemental oxygen is our friend. Interestingly, it can also cause a hyper or hypotension and arrhythmias can occur. This is due to a sympathetic stimulation and inhibition of catecholamine uptake. It's also a negative inotrope. So in our hemodynamically unstable patient, probably not going to be our best option. As far as some of the psychomimetic uh, effects that Maria touched on, the emergence reaction, this is vivid dreams, hallucinations, delirium. We were seeing this in children as we were doing uh, procedural sedation. And it is really important that we remember to use our benzodiazepines in the ICU when we're going to uh, put a patient on a continuous infusion, we automatically schedule around the clock low-dose benzodiazepine to prevent that as we are tapering off the drug. This one is probably my favorite. It's nystagmus. So this is listed as an adverse effect, but it's actually indicative of what Marie and I call the sweet spot. So this is the point in which we know we're at an effective dose. We typically don't go above the dose that uh, nystagmus is first seen, and this resolves upon decreasing the rate or discontinuation. As with any of our continuous sedatives in the ICU, we're always concerned with withdrawal once we discontinue. This is sweating, restlessness, agitation, hallucinations, and we really try to limit our dosing and our duration to prevent that. So for when we're using ketamine for an opioid sparing effect, we are adding ketamine to opioid therapy. So in order to minimize side effects, it is recommended that you initially reduce the current opioid dosing by 25 to 50% at the initiation of therapy. So consider that and then further reduce as ketamine starts to you know, reset the pain system and continually reducing the opioid dose by 25% every 12 to, every 12 to 24 hours as tolerated. And so you manage this by looking at the patient. If you're seeing withdrawal effects, you're going to slow the titration downward of the opioid and give a ketamine bolus. If you see over sedation, then you should further decrease the opioid dose. And if you do have significant adverse reactions, we would recommend discontinuing the infusion. Side effects will subside usually within 15 to 30 minutes. So as you can see, ketamine is a very promising agent. It continues to find various niches in therapy. 
We hope that by listening, we were able to pique your interest and satisfy any curiosities you may have had about ketamine. Well, that's all the time we had today. I want to thank Maria and Danielle, our guests today, for their comprehensive and fun discussion on ketamine and all its various uses. Um, seems like a good uh, ace in the hole to have uh, when you're practicing. For our ACHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education. For listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org forward slash podcast. Please note that continuing education credit expires two years after the date this episode is published. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to ACHP Official through your favorite podcast provider and see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on 